and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute for Government, and for this week, Deputy Presenter of the podcast. There's no getting away from coronavirus, however much you might want to isolate yourself. Scientists have issued yet more gloomy warnings about rising cases of COVID-19 and calls for a circuit breaker lockdown in England are again growing. How is the government and the Prime Minister coping as the pressure mounts? We'll also be talking about why there doesn't seem to be much talking going on between Westminster and the devolved governments, and why that has led to confusing and uncoordinated differences in their coronavirus crisis response. And then we'll turn our attention across the Atlantic, where the US presidential election is in its final nerve-wracking few days. What does the result of the contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden mean for the UK? To discuss all this, I'm joined in our virtual studio by a great panel. Alex Thomas, who leads on our, all our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Anna. IFG Senior Fellow, Kath Haddon, who runs our work on ministers, constitution and civil service. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Kath. And I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Landler, the London Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Mark, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Hannah. So, Mark, have you voted? Uh, I voted weeks ago, like many Americans. <laughs> Are you wishing right now that you were over in the U.S.? Or are you pleased to be thousands of miles away? Uh, well, you know, I was a political reporter in Washington for uh, quite a few years. So this is a, a moment when you'd sort of like to be part of the drama. Uh, but, you know, it's a strange election because of the pandemic, and there isn't that much opportunity to do traditional campaign reporting. So to some extent, that takes the sting out of it a little bit for me. As you say, coronavirus is uh, difficult to get away from at the moment. So let's start there. Here, the scientists at SAGE are now saying that the second wave could be worse than the first. The calls for a circuit breaker lockdown are growing, and so are demands to keep the economy open or to open up still further. Mark, from your vantage point, as someone who knows the US and uh, British politics, what would you say about Boris Johnson's handling of the coronavirus crisis? How does it look to you? Well, I, I mean, I think to some extent, Boris Johnson is caught in some of the same dilemma that the federal government is in the United States, which is uh, trying to, you know, navigate a path between the science and the uh, expert community, uh, which is increasingly dire in the warnings they're making uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and then those who are opposed to closing down the economy because of the, you know, tremendous damage it would do. Uh, and lingering damage to the economy. In the United States, Donald Trump basically made the decision, I think, to more or less rebuff the scientists and side with those who want to open up the country aggressively. And the results are clear to see. Uh, the U.S. is well into its third wave of infection, and the numbers in the U.S. are, are really astonishing uh, in terms of new infections. In this country, after a, a summer where the British government did quite well in keeping the virus under control, you know, they're now facing obviously spiraling numbers. These new projections uh, that came out from SAGE are extremely worrisome uh, and, and more uh, problematic for Boris Johnson. I don't think he has found a way to navigate between the experts and the science on one side and the backbenchers in his own party, and to some extent, the northern uh, mayors on the other side. Uh, and he seems to find himself somewhere in a muddy middle where he may manage to neither control the virus nor limit the damage it does to the economy. This could turn out to be the worst of um, all possible worlds for him. That's a cheery thought for you, from you. Thank you. Um, Kath, 
it's true, as 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 Mark says, that science has has played a less overt role, it seems, in the US. But here, it, Sage and the sort of science viewpoint is often dominating the headlines. Do you think, sort of behind the scenes, it's also dominating the advice that the prime minister receives? I, it's a really interesting question, just because we, we at the moment have you know even less of an idea about what's going on in terms of decision making than perhaps we did in the in the summer. I mean, the UK position is very interesting because Sage is so prominent. You know, it publishes its minutes. It's well known. It publishes its minutes often by some delay. So it's only in the last couple of weeks that we had these predictions from um, September where it said we should go into a national lockdown. But nonetheless, it's a it's a very sort of, you know, well-known organisation putting the science, as it's referred to, sort of front and centre. The problem is all of the rest of what goes into decision making is a little bit less clear. You've got obviously, you know, economic warnings coming from the Treasury. You've got other work that will be done by various departments. And as Mark was saying, you've got the politics of all of this um, and the different sort of, you know, sometimes very vocal constituencies that that Boris Johnson is dealing with, uh, even within his own party. So how he's making decisions, he keeps talking about, you know, trying to get this balancing act. And as Mark says, you know, the danger is that he's in the, the worst of all possible worlds. But there's a communication and strategy problem here, just in terms of conveying why you're doing the things you're doing and and on what basis um, that we're doing it. And the big difference for the UK this week, as well as these new papers that have either leaked out or been published and another new study talking about the the rate of infections that may be going on at the moment of of 100,000 a day. You've also got France and Germany who've now changed their position, and that's another parallel back with March. So France has gone into another quite strict lockdown uh, where people will be largely confined to their homes, but schools left open. And Germany has taken the decision to largely shut down huge swathes of of its economy, although not restricting people to to its homes. So again, you know, Boris Johnson is going to be under that pressure from other other countries and what they're doing. And then added to all of that, he's got everyone starting to worry about Christmas and whether or not <laughs> they'll be able to visit their families. And I mean, it sounds terrible when you're comparing that to sort of death numbers that people are worrying about Christmas, but it shows the sort of human side of this. You know, this is people thinking about their families, their grandparents, loved ones, you know, whether or not they'll be able to see them and, and whether or not the government takes action now is something that's going to affect what happens to them at Christmas. So, so there's all sorts of different things that are putting pressure on him. Yeah, I mean, that certainly plays into the politics of it, which I was going to ask you about, Alex. And Mark mentioned this large group of Tory MPs who are really against tighter restrictions, the role of the mayors in in the north of England. Politically, do you think Johnson has the strength to take them on? How is he going to be swayed by these various different political pressures? Well, yes, and, and I know this isn't the answer I'm supposed to give, but I don't know. And uh, uh, but the, my excuse for saying that is I'm not sure. Is, is I'm I'm not sure Boris Johnson knows either. Mm. And I think that Mark got to the heart of it when he talked about the sort of middle way or triangulation or you know dare I uh, call it a have your cake and eat it strategy that the government and the prime minister have been pursuing certainly since the summer. And I think to govern is to choose. And uh, Johnson is starting to find that he is going to need to take a decision on this, uh, you know, contrast where we are in the UK. And I know it's, it's very easy to sort of lob out international comparisons and look at Germany or wherever and, and think they're doing so much better than us. But my impression is that 
Angela Merkel, for example, has political capital to spend on taking a decision that Boris Johnson now, for a whole variety of reasons that we've been talking about for weeks and months, lacks. So his big decision is whether he continues with the triangulation or whether he decides to plump for one course or the other, a, a, a sort of you know US style uh, up to this point or a harsher approach. My hunch, though, is that the politics of, of this will get resolved by the numbers. Kath the pressure coming from the French lockdown, obviously further restrictions in Germany as as well. When uh, and you know, sadly, we assume that the uh, death rates, the hospital admissions uh, start to rise, and if hospitals start to get overwhelmed, that will force the pace. And the voices I suspect that are louder now about um, about looser restrictions and and supporting the economy will will come round to the view that the sooner and the harder you 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 go on on this, the better. The fear, of course, is that that will be too late. You know, Jeremy. Uh, Farrow, the um, head of the Wellcome Trust, who sits on, sits on stage, says a sharp lockdown in September would have been best. One now is better. The the the, the longer that time goes on, the uh, worse the situation gets for the economy as well as for uh, for people's health. And of course, within the UK, you have this uh, simultaneous experiment going on with the the lockdowns we've already seen um, in in Wales and and Scotland, which will be able to be directly compared against England. Alex. One of the things you've been writing about this week is, is the whole communications side of the crisis and the problems that the government's sort of had throughout, throughout the crisis in, in communicating what it's been doing. Can you tell us a bit more about, about what, what, what you were saying? Yes, and I was—I I sort of took as the starting point on this ill-advised tweet that an uh, official I feel sort of slightly sorry for in the Department for International Trade sent out during the Great British Bake Off about uh, suggesting that price of uh, soy sauce would come down thanks to the trade deal in in Japan. Many thousands of uh, hundreds of trade experts on Twitter jumped on this, pointed out that actually the price wouldn't come down compared to how it is at the moment. And it was only a a benefit compared to the UK coming out of the EU on World Trade Organization terms. So there's this sort of, you know, half entertaining Twitter spat about that. But for me, it, it, it was part of a theme with this government where there's a, you know, either a sloppiness or a, a desire to undermine the trust and reliability of official communications. So there was a video that the Home Office put out that talked about um, activist uh, lawyers uh, obstructing the deportation of migrants. There have been regular communications around Brexit about, you know, the Northern Ireland office claiming that there wouldn't be a border in the Irish Sea, uh, all the way back to uh, to the government saying that the UK would definitely leave on the 31st of Oct- October last year when, uh, when the law stated clearly otherwise. So uh, my point really was that there's a looseness and a, a sort of failure to check and respect the truth of these official government communications. Um, that is worrying and the permanent secretaries and communications directors in government departments need to put in place tighter protocols. Uh, it, it, it all sounds a little bit pompous, but I do think there's a, a serious danger of degrading of, of these official government communications. I'll be fascinated in Mark's view on it because uh, you know one of my worries is that we start heading down a more uh, Trumpian route where the veracity of, uh, of what the government says gets more and more uh, doubtful. Yeah, and Mark, also this week you you wrote a really interesting piece about the arrival in the UK of a a new feature of government communications, the televised press conference, which is obviously a a US thing that uh, we're we're starting to, to copy. What are your thoughts? Well, what, what strikes me about this innovation is, well, two things. Uh, one, it, it seems to be on the government's part, a calculation that they 
succeeded with the coronavirus briefings that Boris Johnson and other cabinet ministers did for, you know, several weeks back in the spring and early summer. I would say that those uh, those briefings started strong, and then we began running into some of the problems that Alex was getting at in terms of the consistency of messaging, some obvious signs of dissent between the chief scientific advisor, the chief medical advisor, and some of the political leadership. Nevertheless, um, number 10 has decided that this uh, is a, a format they can use to their advantage and in a more regular way and covering topics much more broadly than a health crisis. My observation was they were bringing it in at the very moment that the White House briefing in uh, the, you know the fourth year of the Trump administration has kind of degenerated into this uh, political exercise where um, the White House mostly vilifies the journalists. The journalists express uh, you know open contempt for the facts that they're being given by the spokeswoman, and uh, the the atmosphere is toxic on both sides. I, I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, a Downing Street briefing would resemble that. But I do think that there's a risk, especially with a government like this that views its relations with the press in a somewhat antagonistic way, that you could see the briefing become an occasion for score settling uh, and point scoring rather than the kind of, you know, earnest, the earnest conveyance of, of information, which is the whole purpose behind the exercise. And Kath, just on that, I mean, Presumably in the past, these some of these sort of communications opportunities would have been for Parliament. It would have been the, the Prime Minister standing up in front of the Commons to give some of this information. And that would be quite a different um, sort of purpose and, and environment. Yeah. And I mean, Hannah, as you and I know well, um, the, the current speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, has already lambasted the government on several occasions for announcing things outside of Parliament. And you know, if you're doing these press conferences, you need meat to keep feeding it. And that means you want to be announcing stuff. And so it's going to make it harder, if anything, to try and show Parliament the due respect and make sure that important announcements are made there. But on the other hand, that is, you know, modern government and how it works. I, I think like Mark's really hit on the sort of the, the, the deep irony at the heart of this is the government says that it wants to do this because it wants to be able to speak more directly to the public um, and, the, you know, feels that the media interpreting what it's saying isn't the best way of engaging directly with the public. But obviously, if they just descend into an argument between, uh, you know, members of the lobby and the spokesperson and the government um, about, you know, the truth of whatever it is that they're saying or the interpretation of it or trying to get answers out of them or whatever, it becomes very much just about the people in the room. And and actually, the, the public at home end up being forgotten, let alone their representatives in Parliament. So, yeah, it, you know, we're all waiting with bated breath to see how it turns out. Um, it it could be a disaster for the government um, or it could be something that actually, you know, changes it entirely for any new government. Um, and this is the sort of the way of the future and it'll be hard for another one to row back. Talking about communications, one of the reports that we put out this week has drawn attention to the way that coordination and communication between the nations of the UK has collapsed over the course of the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm delighted that Jess Sargent, the author of that report, is joining us now. Hi, Jess. Hi, Hannah. 
So how often does the Prime Minister normally meet with the First Ministers of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? Um, well, at the moment, uh, not very often. Um, so this is the, one of the things we've seen change quite a lot over the course of the coronavirus crisis. At the beginning, um, there was really close coordination between the four governments of the UK um, and the leaders of the four nations were meeting fairly regularly uh, through the COBRA structure. So between March and May, they met four times um, but there was a real kind of shift um, in May on the four nation approach as that started to break down and the four, the four governments started to do their own thing. Um, and then during that period between May and September, there, ha- there weren't any COBRA meetings. Um, and the uh, First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, uh, said that he'd had just one brief phone call with, with the Prime Minister. Um, so there's a big contrast here between the early phase, which was very closely coordinated, in which the governments were, were meeting quite regularly, as well as through COBRA, they were meeting through ministerial implementation groups um, on an almost daily basis. But since May, we've really seen that fall apart. Those ministerial implementation groups were completely disbanded. And there's been no structures for uh, kind of systematic and formal engagement and discussion between the four nations. And what's the reason for that? So the official reason um, is that the change of structures, um, so the UK government moved away from ministerial implementation groups to this cabinet committee structure. And the the formal reason for that was um, this was to uh, better manage the the second phase of the response, which was less about managing a crisis and more about thinking about long term recovery. Now, what's interesting is actually this cabinet committee structure that was established mirrors the structures that were established um, to plan for a no deal Brexit. And actually, although the devolved administrations are invited to the no deal Brexit uh, cabinet committees, they haven't been invited to the COVID ones. So I think there is a sense that there was something else going on here. Um, I've heard from some officials that there was a bit of uncomfortableness from the UK government at having uh, devolved ministers present in forums where they were still coming up with the cabinet position or or thinking through issues themselves. Um, There were some early examples of Nicola Sturgeon announcing um, things that had been agreed at COBRA meetings perhaps before the Prime Minister, um, which I think has led to a, a bit of distrust here. Um, but because of this change in structure, um, we do see a kind of absence of coordination that has really um, shown itself in how independently each of the four governments seems to be making policy in this area. And what's the problem with that? I mean, why does it matter? That presumably, you know, devolution was designed to allow for divergence between the nations. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many good reasons why the four governments might diverge, be that um, evidence about the prevalence of the virus, um, specific scientific advice, or even just uh, political judgments. Uh, there might be different uh, different balances reached between uh, factors like the economy and public health based on political preferences in that part of the UK. Um, but what we have seen is some problems arise because of the different lockdown rules in each part of the UK, particularly in relation to kind of public understanding and public consent um people anecdotally find it confusing uh, that there are different rules in different parts of the UK sometimes without a really clear explanation so for example why you at one point you could meet um two households up to eight people in Scotland 
uh, only two households, unlimited number of people in Wales and only six people in England. And one of the things that Sage said in one of its recent papers is that actually having these different rules without clear explanation can actually undermine the logic of them and therefore mean that people might be less likely to comply. Um, More recently, we've also seen uh, kind of more political problems come to a head. So the the Welsh government has recently imposed restrictions uh, on people entering Wales from different parts um, of of the UK. Um, And I really think that closing borders is not really a sustainable solution, either practically in terms of how you police that or politically. Um, So I think there are some consequences of divergence that need to be managed and they can be better managed um, if you improve communication and information sharing between the four governments. If there's a forum for them to think through their decisions, how they might affect each other, whether they can mitigate um, some of those potential effects or potentially even come up with common elements of their approach. And I don't think at the moment that's happening. And that's one of the things that our report recommends. Thanks, Jess. Mark, Compared to the US, does does this sort of concern seem a bit tame to you? I mean, is there any equivalent coordination going on between different levels of, of this, uh, in, in the United States? Well, there is sort of the same issue about a lack of coordination and a, di- a divergence in strategy if you look at the federal government in the U.S. and um, some of the states. Uh, and in particular, uh, the difference between states, to use President Trump's crude terminology, the Democratic-run states uh, and the red states, the Republican states, where you've seen um, states in the Northeast and the West Coast impose you know, very strict kind of Scotland-style lockdowns. Uh, and then the red states, uh, you know, be extremely loose and, uh, you know, almost hostile to the idea of a mandate on face masks or on lockdowns uh, with the president encouraging the red states and um, targeting the blue states, saying that, that the democratically run uh, states have, have actually uh, ruined their economies uh, and um, victimized their people by by taking the strong measures they have. So you do have the same lack of uh, coordination in the United States. And I think one of the things that would change if uh, Joe Biden were to win the election is I think he would seek to have a much more coordinated federal state strategy for coronavirus than we've seen so far. And do you think, I mean, you pretty clearly set out Trump's view there, what do you think the crisis has shown about the sort of strengths and weaknesses of the federal system in the U.S.? Well, on the plus side, it's shown that states can act uh, with qu- quite a bit of uh, resourcefulness when they need to. Uh, there have been some rather innovative things states have done. I note that um, the governor of Maryland, the state that I uh, lived in before moving here, uh, made a deal with the South Koreans uh, to get a huge supply of, of testing equipment uh, when he couldn't get what he needed from the federal government. So states are using uh, you know, their own uh, purchasing power, their own resources uh, to actually fend for themselves. But I do think that when you have a government that has a message that is fundamentally at odds with, you know, 15 or 20 of your states, uh, that's as, as you know, uh, other members of the panel have pointed out, that's deeply confusing for people who live in those states, uh, travel to other parts of the country where the rules might be very different. Uh, and that just sort of suggests a lack of unified, the lack of sort of unity in how the, the, the country is trying to respond to it. So I think that, you know, some of the strengths are apparent in the way the states have handled it, but also the weaknesses uh, have, have been equally apparent. 
So let's take a closer look at America now, because obviously this time next week, the presidential election will be over. Well, at least the voting will be over. <laughs> um, who knows what will happen after that? It would be good now to discuss with you all what four more years of Don Donald Trump as president or the election of Joe Biden might mean for the UK. So, Mark, sidestepping predictions about what's actually going to happen, how much of a difference do you think the result is going to make for the UK? Um, well, I'm glad you're not asking me to make a prediction, um, since anyone in my position would be sort of foolhardy to try. But um, on the question of what it means for the UK, I think that if it's uh, the Trump administration, you would continue to have a pro-Brexit, a friend of Boris Johnson in the White House. Uh, there, there would be much more momentum behind a UK-US free trade agreement, uh, though I remain somewhat skeptical about whether a Trump government would give the UK better terms than a democratic administration in that kind of a deal. Um, but nevertheless, you'd, you would have sort of on the trade and commercial and ideological side continued uh, synchronicity between the two. I think what would be problematic uh, in a second term for the UK uh, is that Trump would be unbound in foreign policy and issues that he's clearly staked out in his first term. I could foresee, for example, uh, Trump uh, delivering on a threat to pull out of NATO, which would put Britain as a you know key NATO member in a terrible position. So I, I don't think it would be all smooth sailing under uh, Trump part two. Biden, on the other hand, is kind of a different set of issues. Uh, he is a multilateralist and a transatlantic uh, person by nature. So I think the special relationship would, would be just fine. I think what would be challenging for the UK is that on the trade side, I'm not sure that Joe Biden uh, attaches nearly the same priority to a UK-US FTA as the Trump administration does. I think he might bring a very different view to what a trade agreement should look like. And so the risk for the UK is that that deal is put on the back burner, which after all was one of the major selling points that Boris Johnson used in the election uh, for one of the great windfalls of getting Brexit done. There's also the issue of Northern Ireland uh, where I think the UK government needs to be very careful in how it handles the Internal Market Act and the withdrawal agreement so that it doesn't send a signal that it is threatening the Good Friday Agreement in, in Northern Ireland as, as of course you know, uh, Democrats in Congress put great store by preserving that agreement and anything that's seen as a threat to it uh, would get in the way of congressional approval of a trade deal. Uh, and Joe Biden himself has weighed in on this, uh, tweeting that there would not be a UK-US tra trade deal if um, the Good Friday Agreement was a, a victim of it. So um, I think the UK government needs to to sort of tread carefully with the with the Biden administration on 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 re matters related to Northern Ireland, but I think in terms of the broader relationship, the biggest sort of long term threat uh, is not antagonism be between the UK and the US, but maybe a little less direct attention. I think Joe Biden will care a lot about repairing the breach between France and Germany and the EU and the United States, and will probably. Uh, leave the UK off, not not ignoring it, but just giving it somewhat less of a priority than Trump has. And that's the long-term threat the UK needs to be aware of. 
so just to come in there on on that, picking up particularly on the um, uh, some of the points around Brexit and uh, and and trade. But I, I I agree entirely with Mark on 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 what he was saying in terms of uh, this is there's there's loads of focus in in uh, the British media about sort of the personalities and you know Trump and Brexit and Biden and links with uh, Downing Street or kind of personal histories. It's, it's it's far more important than the underlying interests. I think as Mark said, a trade deal is going to be really difficult. Whoever's in the White House. Partly because Congress has a big role in it, and partly because there's going to be an almighty row about there's already an, uh, an, uh, the beginnings of an almighty row about agriculture and how that uh, f- and food standards and how that plays into a uh, into a trade deal. I I actually think and and Mark mentioned this, but just to sort of um, amplify it a little bit, the biggest difference between um, between the Biden and Trump for the UK is the sort of um, a, a, a consistent uh, and multilateral approach to foreign policy versus uh, inconsistent uh, and and kind of buccaneering approach um and so i think the you know for whether it's whether it's nato whether it's the world trade organization whether it's uh, sort of uh, relationships ac- across the world um whether it's how uh, how how the us approaches russia and big strategic interest between india and china as well is you know, in, in, enormous sort of massive foreign policy questions are going to come up over the next few years and the the, the question is are they handled in a in a multilateralist and consistent way or um uh, an, an inconsistent and uh, unpredictable way. And Kath, I mean, whether or not Trump wins another four years, he's clearly already sort of having an impact in the UK in terms of our politics, on on, on tone of politics, on on sort of respect for convention, on institutions. What to what extent do you do you feel that that is sort of a lasting impact, or or is it just something which is a, a sort of a temporary effect? Well, I mean, that's going to be another really interesting possible outcome from this election. Uh, I mean, on one level, I mean, you had Nigel Farage, I think, speaking for Trump at a rally yesterday, just showing the sort of the close links there between the sort of Brexit wing and um, Trumpian style politics. And that's going to be a big test if Trump loses uh, what does that say to number 10 about, you know, that style of politics? We talked earlier about sort of communication styles, about, you know, how you approach the mainstream media, uh, things like, you know, the techniques of sort of picking battles, all this talk about culture wars, you know, questions about whether things have an actual cut through um, with the British public or not, or whether it's a lot of noise in, you know, the Westminster bubble or, or in the US as it's referred to, the swamp. All of those things are going to come into question um, if Trump loses, if we return to Biden. You know, he's supposed to be the the person that's going to try and heal a lot of these divisions in America. That's a lot more difficult challenge. Uh, I'm not sure that's so easy to do here. Um, I think some of it is going to be called into question, but I think some of it comes down to we still haven't found out what kind of Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants to be. We know what what kind of campaigner he wanted to be in terms of winning the election, winning the Brexit vote. But in terms of his style of government, it's been so much pulled around by, first of all, sort of getting through the Brexit process and then coronavirus. Um, You know, we we don't really know. It's still very early days for this government. So we don't really know um, if uh, what kind of prime minister he could look like long term. And this could be one of those moments that um, causes him a shift in approach. Just don't know what kind of shift it will lead towards. And Mark, I mean, just picking up on that, do you think Trump has had a permanent effect on the politics of the US? How much will shift back more towards the, the, the previous norm? 
Um, I, I think that Trump will have a lingering effect, not least because he's probably not going to go away, even if he loses. Uh, I mean, one of the things that many people expect him to try to do in the event that he loses is to go into the media business and maybe start a competing uh, right wing uh, 24-hour news network competing with Fox. Uh, he's also got uh, children who now have their own ambitions and their own national profiles, whether it's uh, Don Jr. or Ivanka Trump. Uh, you could well see them figuring in future Republican primaries. So I think uh, one way or the other, uh, Donald Trump is going to be a lingering fixture in the American landscape. And I also think that it's not clear uh, in fact, it's clear we have not solved uh, some of the underlying issues that uh, Trump was able to seize on. Uh, the, some of the tribalism in American politics, the you know feelings on the part of the working class that they've been left behind, uh, the fact that we never reckoned with the negative effects of globalization. You know, these are long-term secular issues that take generations to really confront, and and Donald Trump may, in some ways, have accelerated our reckoning with some of these issues by being the disruptive force he was. But any president coming afterwards, Democrat or Republican, is still going to be uh, confronting these huge economic issues, issues around globalism, uh, around uh, income inequality, uh, some of which were also laid bare by the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, I don't think um, we've seen the last of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, might be nice to think so, if, especially if he loses in a landslide. But I think in either scenario, uh, he is going to be a big player going forward. Mark, can I ask you, if um, if Biden wins, uh, how much trouble do you think he'll have with his left flank, the uh, AOC wing of the uh, of the Democrat Party? I think that's a fascinating question. It is. And I, I think you're right to raise it. I think that what's going to happen is that after some, you know, fairly short honeymoon uh, period, um, the Biden administration would deal, would face this very large kind of ideological uh, battle within the Democratic Party. Um, I think the uh, AOC is probably going to, you know, symbolize the rising wing of the party. It'll also depend on the nature of Joe Biden's victory. If it's clear in the exit polling data and the numbers uh, that the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC wing of the party helped power Biden to a huge victory, um, they're going to want to have their stake in the outcome. They're going to want to have uh, people in the cabinet. They're going to want to have their say over economic policy, over climate change policy. Um, and um, Joe Biden is a mainstream centrist Democrat. Uh, his instinct will be to hold the line on as much of this as he can. Uh, but he's also a transitional figure by his own admission, he sees himself as a sort of a, a figure that will uh, stabilize the situation and hand off to the next generation. And I think that next generation on the Democratic side will be far more progressive and left uh, than the presidents that we've had, uh, that we've become used to in the past. That's a really fascinating insight, Mark. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Alex Thomas, Jess Sargent, and especially to you, Mark. Thanks so much for being with us. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more IFG discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've actually got a special podcast on the question we've just been looking at, what does the US election mean for the UK, coming up, which will be well worth a listen before Tuesday. 
And you can hear all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And in a week that's all about casting votes, please do leave us a rating and a review too. And of course, you can find all our work, including Jess's new report on the coronavirus crisis and devolution, on our website. That's it for now. Enjoy US election night, if enjoy is the right word for it. 